Judgment Day, the film podcast that fits your favorite films against Terminator 2. I'm your host, Michael Carroll. Our theme today is Shitty White 90s Suburbanites, and my guest is Annie Rose Malamut. Hi. Hi. How are you? Good. <laughs> What's up? Um, Live from Quarantine Bunker. Oh, Jesus Christ, yeah. <laughs> um, uh Annie, you're the host of Girls, Guts, and Giallo. Uh, G- Giallo? Giallo? Giallo. Giallo. Hey. <laughs> um, and um, famously, uh, you have the Instagram page, Fat Goth, G-A-W-T-H. <laughs> Exposing me. Yeah, Fat, go- fat Goth. It's like goth with a New York Jew accent. Say say it. How 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 how's it sound with gath? Fat goth. Goth. Yeah. That's me. That's you. Yeah. <laughs> and. Edit <laughs> Don't no. They, they no. the people love it. They love. The... <laughs> um. I I made the mistake of talking to an experienced podcaster. Uh, <laughs> I I mean like for me when I listen to podcasts I kind of like people being stupid and silly but that's that's me I know some people don't like that um but yeah my podcast is girls guts and jello uh I talk about subversive controversial and sleazy cinema from a leather dyke perspective and that's that's what I do over there, and pretty much do whatever I want. So that's GGG, not to be confused with Dan Savage's GGG. Which one is? Oh, damn, I haven't thought about Dan Savage in a while. What, what, what's his? He doesn't have a podcast, but he has this concept GGG, which mm-hmm. is like I forget what it stands for, but it's like his. It, it gets better, but he got. <laughs> but with sex. Yeah, <laughs> it's. Uh, by the way, you. I don't know if you if it's picking up on my microphone, but I mm-hmm. my roommates have very two very stupid tiny dogs who cool. might bark at nothing. So Excellent. I'm just warning you. Let's do it. Yeah. Hey, so we're gonna do so we're gonna do three films today. Shitty white, uh, 90s suburbanites. We're looking at Welcome to the Dollhouse. Uh, we're looking at Richard Linklater's 1997 Suburbia, as opposed to Penelope Spheris's 1986 Suburbia. And uh, oh my and- god, Michael, we have to pause for a second because I yeah. rewatched the Penelope Spheris movie. I did not watch the Richard Linklater movie. Ah! <laughs> but uh, you know that I. You know what? Fuck it. Let's 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 go in. Let's just do let's, it. Let's give it. This is eighties yeah. and nineties. Um, okay. No, no. Let's let's power through this. Um, <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> I I should have known. They should they should have more names for movies. That's... You know, right? <laughs> I mean, we could talk about both of them. <laughs> um, yeah. Let's let's do both of them. Um, <laughs> Let's put some context into stuff here. We're talking about growing up in the 90s. You and I had just actually uh, uh, just done an episode on your podcast about Chasing Amy. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, we put it to bed. We, we 
wrapped up all our like hanging feelings about chasing Amy, um, Kevin Smith, Ben Affleck. And what I found interesting about that film uh, was how much of a lovely fantasy it was about the nineties. Um, like that, you, you know, like this, the, like what, like a, what cool people seem like at the time, um, you know, interesting people uh, and definitely like, like, you know, being of the nineties, like what all that, you know, was like, now we're looking at films that are kind of in a lot of ways, they're, they're all like, you know, quote unquote independent films, but like we're, t- we're looking at films that are just like um, the nineties at their worst. That's uh, yeah, that's interesting. The nineties at their worst. Potentially. Well, okay. Look, we're looking at films that are about the nineties that are about like boredom. Right. Um, culture that doesn't really go anywhere like you know people who's like who are like kind of frustrated and angry and that sort of like um centered um that they feel this way about stuff Mm -hmm. um uh and 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 films that like um uh kind of visually reflect like uh suburban detritus right you know like uh i know for me growing up in that in that era like that's where i was living at the time um uh well you're this is very like gen x mentality right of like just existentialism like i'm also thinking of the movie sfw which Mm -hmm. is you know that ethos of like so fucking what like who cares which is very much the the feeling of those of these four movies Mm -hmm. (laughs) the two suburbias and I guess I as a preamble to all of this I was wondering what you think about the the Twitter trend of of Gen X talking about this quarantine and how Gen X is going to be the only generation that survives the quarantine because y'all are the forgotten existential generation um, have you seen any of that discussion? No, that's not that's not on my radar at all. But uh, well, like who's saying what? Like what? just a lot of Gen X writers, um, mm-hmm. journalists mainly talking about Gen X being like latchkey kids and like growing up in the the wake of uh, the AIDS epidemic and uh, Gulf War and just kind of being like prepared to be this. I, I mean, I personally don't get the logic because I think millennials are also pretty existential. But, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you can speak to that of of feeling like the generation that that will that is prepared for this quarantine, prepared for the nihilism well, of this moment. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I'm going to make some broad generalizations, which which always happens when people start talking about generational stuff. But um hot take um you know generation x like grew up and really understood tv as a generation more than i think like anyone before and um i think that's what i see more and more people like doing you know it's just like they're just sitting around watching a lot of tv right now and like having a a certain relationship to the media which is like um you know the media can come at me and i'm kind of powerless to stop it but i can uh make shitty jokes about it with my friends and that there's power in that and uh, you know in that like how much power there actually is and that speaks for itself 
Um, but um, yeah, I, that's that's me talking off the cuff there. Yeah. Anna, what do you got? What do you what do you what do you got on that? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think it's just funny because like Gen X hated boomers so much, but they kind of sound like them right now because they're like. Oh, you know, we we know how to entertain ourselves. Like millennials don't know how to do that. Like Gen Z doesn't know how to do that. I'm like, do you know any millennials or Gen Z? That's all they do is like entertain yeah. themselves. So it's just interesting to me that there's I mean, every generation like becomes the thing that they hated. Um yep. eventually. <laughs> <laughs> We all get old and crotchety and, like, don't want to hear about kids anymore. Well, I think our generation is really going to get a one-up on them because we're not going to get old. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really interested right now. It's I'm really interested right now in in, um, nihilism Mm. in in film and storytelling because, like... um, I think growing up and actually kind of well into just like a few years ago, I tended to like have like this attitude of just like, um, just like really not liking like stories that like, uh, you know, like it turned me off of a lot of like horror, especially horror that didn't have like a comedy bent. Um, and yet, uh, you know, like, and, and like, um, just like a lot of like really like dark, like art house stuff that like, um, uh, what's his name? Von Trier. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, uh, you know, like, uh, kind of coming face to face with, with like rewatching some of like these films that I really liked when I was younger, you know, I, I, it's, it's funny because I think there's some weird optimism in, in them that maybe down the road things, maybe not in Welcome to the Dollhouse, but in the other films that maybe potentially there might be something interesting down the line, uh, in another era and, uh, just, I don't know. Um, I'm not going anywhere with this. I'm spinning in circles. That's okay. Um, um, you want to jump into Welcome to the Dollhouse? Let's talk about Welcome to the Dollhouse. Okay, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this really square thing here. I just grabbed like a really brief synopsis. If you haven't seen it, middle school student Don Weiner faces degradation at school. I'm not gonna read this thing. Uh, <laughs> it's it's about a poor middle school girl who's like the middle child she's like you know she's not in new jersey Jersey, right they're jewish she's not Mm. a uh she's in the middle so she's not beautiful like her younger sister and she's not particularly smart like her older brother is so she you know is just bullied at school bullied at home and um it's a it's a cruel, mean little film, and I think yeah. that his his shtick only kind of works ever in this movie. And I think like he tries to do it over and over again, and it's just like, man, you're just kind of mean. Like, yeah, you just kind of want to well, subject your characters. Director, director Todd Salon. Yes, um, yeah. Is, I think his second or third feature, um, and then after he followed this up with Happiness, which was probably the film he's most well known for Mm -hmm. um uh but yeah i mean this when did you first see this film i first saw this film in high school so Mm -hmm. pretty traumatic (laughs) because it was uh not entirely close to home but in some ways was close to home um 
Mm-hmm. And it was... I mean, I loved it. I thought it was brilliant when I saw it when I was in high school. And I have to say on this rewatch, I still think it's great. Like I love I love this it, movie. Um there like like I'm looking at like my notes here and it like it opens with cafeteria anxiety where you're just like I don't know where to sit. But that and, and but that's kind of low hanging fruit. There there's like fighting with your sibling over what you're gonna watch on T V and then like 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 one sibling going out and getting their mom and like um like that was just sort of like something where i'm just like oh yeah that's 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 pretty much what my life was at the time right. you know just like like weird power struggles that like are just like mostly symbolic um the the film if 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 you haven't seen it you're, you're not clear yet it's not there's it's not very plot driven film it's it's very much like a hangout film um it's it's much more about like listening to characters um uh and um kind of like seeing like how they like play out these like small like battles you know um it does kind of culminate in uh um uh, a plot in like the last 20 minutes that's really when like like the lart and like when there's like really like a lot of like tension um i don't know how much we want to get into that but um what was it so so what was it about it that that before we get there what was it about that really seemed interesting to you uh on this rewatch yeah let's go with that well i think i mean it's interesting right because when i was rewatching it the other night my roommate came in and was like you're watching welcome to the dollhouse like and I told her why I was watching it and she was like well if anybody should talk about this movie it should be a woman and yeah. I c- totally agree with that even though this movie was not written and directed by women um but it does capture something of that just kind of hopeless degradation and budding desire that happens at that age when you're a young girl. I mean, you're not, you're not a child anymore, but you're not really an adult and you are beginning to be sexualized and beginning to also desire sex. So that that much is captured definitely in this film, you know, and Dawn as a kind of not typical high school girl, middle school girl or high school girl representation is very interesting to me because very, it's not common that we get a film that's centered on an ugly girl, like ugly quote unquote. So it's, yeah, that that was that part of it was interesting to me. That well, and and she's she's quote unquote ugly. You know, she doesn't seem to have. I'm oh, sorry to interrupt. No, go ahead. Um, she doesn't have a lot of like. She she's not like. She doesn't come off as like being particularly bright. She doesn't come off as being um, particularly kind. You know, um, the the but she's someone who like verisimilitude like she really feels like oh yeah i know i i I knew kids like this at at this age you know um and it's just so 
strange to see something like this in in film uh in 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 a wonderful way Um, yeah but it also at the same time kind of seems like uh todd salons like knew that girl but not in the way a girl would know that girl like it's it's very much his oh this girl is just kind of like nothing like she's not cute she's not smart she's not talented um she just is and she just has like these base adolescent emotions and i think you know if you were a girl growing up knowing that girl it would it's more complex like that would be somebody that you were forced to invite to parties and like you know their their mom was like oh you know your your mom was like you really need to invite dawn and you know but then you would maybe discover like being alone with her like oh actually this is a really complex and interesting person so it's and which is not something that young boys would usually have like the privilege of getting to know so that part was interesting to me as well how she's just like a vessel yeah there's there was a um you know the the subplot involves her younger sister getting you know uh, uh kidnapped and she goes through this very like interesting heartbreaking fantasy uh at the end um which i think kind of um shows so much of what it was that she was interested in what she what she was sort of uh, interested in like um being about uh well what solange was trying uh, let me back up a second here Uh, um before yeah yeah, go ahead I was going to say, how dark are we allowed to get here? Because this is such a dark movie. Just go for it. Okay. So the other thing that Todd Salons captures, that's definitely part of the young girl experience that is, I think, very hard for people to talk about is like the, when you start to understand what rape is and you start to... You know, that's something you get told growing up as a young girl all the time. It's like, oh, you know, don't let anybody touch you. Like, people are going to try to rape you. People are going to try to take advantage of you. But it's never, you know, explicitly told to you what that is. So there's, like, on her part, an awareness of it, but also an extreme naivete about it. And an almost, like, kind of sweet innocence towards it that both her and Brandon have even though he's in the other role where he's this aggressor but doesn't really know how to be like he's just parodying it um or parroting it and they are both playing their respective role and it's like a kind of a demented game of house of of playing house and enacting these societal conditions and the other part of that is also in brandon constantly telling her he's going to rape her dawn also starts to understand what it is to be desired and that push and pull between the fear of rape and the eroticism of somebody wanting you so much that they would take you by force is also explored there which is i think really a really brilliant part of this film 
Yeah, and just for context, there there's a subplot in the in the center of the film where um, uh, it's it's exactly what you just said. Um, she's getting bullied, and the school bully escalates it by saying he's gonna rape her, and then yeah, it it, it unfolds as you said. Um, yeah, it, I, honestly, my notes on that were just like uh, this is this makes me uncomfortable, um, but. Um, but yeah, you're you're right. It was a game of house, and it's very it's weirdly very tender. You you said that this is the only film of Salanza's that you really care for. Um, yeah. Uh, where do you think this? Uh, uh, let's not get too far. Well, <laughs> but I'm very interested in that. I when I talked to Liam Billingham for this podcast, we did talk about happiness. Um, mm-hmm. I'm curious. Well, I don't hate happiness. Like I don't hate his other films. But I think that this is the film where his shtick really um, is successful and, you know, is it's kind of like I was saying, like a a kind of mean, cruel little movie with no good ending. And it works in this case because that's how it feels when you're in middle school. (laughs) So it whereas his nihilism in other movies just kind of comes off as like, fuck you, man. Like that's. It, like that's how I feel in happiness. I, that's how I feel in storytelling. But th- one of the his see, other. Have you seen Wiener, the, the 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 sequel to this? I actually Wiener haven't. Dog. Yeah. Um. So I would I will check that out. But also yeah, I, the I the movie. Have you seen his movie Palindromes? Yes. That I think is kind of interesting because you know there's a different actress in every scene of the movie, even though it's the same yeah. character and. What I like about that is, you know, he's saying, how do you feel about these things happening to her now if she looks like this? What if she yeah. looks like this? You know, which is a interesting concept. And I think he starts to talk about that in Welcome to the Dollhouse. How do you feel about these things when they're happening to this person versus when they're happening to this person? And yeah. the kind of fantasy you were talking about. I mean, when I was that age, I... I had fantasies like that and I would write them down in my diary like, oh, and then I do this and, you know, everybody loves me all of a sudden and like, you know, then I and I don't feel like this anymore. And yeah. my mom says that she loves me. you know. Right. Yeah. And in in her in what happens is like her little sister also has this very early experience with sexual assault and sexual violence by being kidnapped by a local pedophile, which is like so fucked up and dark and it's played for comedy, which is so crazy. But she and she has that that early experience as well. But it's like, I don't know, just that this thread of sexual violence through the film is is interesting to me. And the way that the the bad girl of the film is like, she has sexual agency, but you also see that she's very much kind of being thrown around by these older guys. Yeah. There's, um, there's, these films are farces, if people aren't clear. Like, you know, I think that, like, when we say that they're comedies and they're played for laughs, and and I think that's sort of what, uh, uh, that's sort of one of the things I've been kind of been thinking about when I think about his work recently is like like what are the parameters of farce and like what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. Um, um, did it did it 
and so it worked for you with this, and, and it maybe doesn't work as strong. The, the farce element doesn't work as strong in some of his other pieces? Yeah, I think in this piece it comes off as, wow, this is like a very biting commentary on this stage of life. And mm -hmm. in his other films it just kind of comes off as just meanness and just yeah. cruelty for the sake of cruelty. Uh, whereas I feel like the cruelty is very pointed and purposeful in this movie. Um, also, interesting side note, Heather Matarazzo, who is a lesbian, uh, would later go on to be on the show The L Word briefly, as would the guy who plays Steve, her love interest. So it's that I, I completely forgot about that. And so I was that was very funny to me. All right, let's. Um, are, you have any last thoughts? You want to switch over to the suburbia? Yeah, no, I don't have any last thoughts. Yeah, I think let's, I let's hand it out. Let's uh, let's switch over to Penelope Spears in <laughs> suburbia. Yeah, which I believe was I believe was eighty six. Yes, uh, Roger Corman produced, mm -hmm. starring Flea, um, and um, featuring. Oh, what are the bands that are in that? Um, off the top of uh, uh, where they the do? Vandals. The Vandals, uh, the like, the what are they called the Libertines? Oh, I'm not going to Google this on on my podcast live right now. But, <laughs> you can uh, edit it. We can Google it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I want I want to see. I want to be cool and be like, oh yeah, off the top of my head, it was the the, the Sisters of Liberty or whatever. <laughs> oh, seven seconds was seven seconds in that. Anyway, Maybe so I just remember the Vandals. Um, look, uh, suburbia. Um, Penelope Sphere's Suburbia is um, about a, a, a teenage runaway who um, ends up um, moving into a punk house. And then kind of the film quickly stops centering him and is about like the punk house more broadly. Mm -hmm. And um, then there's some like um, angry out of work, um, like uh, SUV driving dads who are just like, uh, well, we don't want these punks around here causing all these problems. The punks are absolutely causing problems, but are not the root of whatever their issues are. And then um, they uh, have a big standoff um, in their punk house. Mm -hmm. And um, I haven't seen this film in probably about 10 years. Uh, I think it's super fun. But now you go Really fun. <laughs> it is fun. Is it still fun? Um, I mean, it's super dark, which is why I was like, oh, yeah, this works with Welcome to the Dollhouse. Like, totally. Yeah. Um, I mean, this was this film was like my life. I mean, just yeah. like sh being a shitty punk kid, like doing drugs and mm. just like complete ennui um, and just like the you know, it's actually interesting to talk about this with the other suburbia because there's like a lot of they're, the same themes yeah um like just the the racial tensions that happen in both of those films mm -hmm. and the class tensions and the penelope spheres definitely has more to say than link ladder does i think i mean suburbia i mean this is penelope spheres this is coming from a woman who was in the punk scene so i see her suburbia as kind of a really searing uh, portrayal of punk men and mm -hmm. how horrible they are <laughs> despite feeling like they are outsiders um right. 
and the way that they perpetuate. And, you know, the other thing is there's quite a bit of sexual violence in this film as well, which is why I was feeling it worked so well with Welcome to the Dollhouse. Um, mm-hmm. And just like the the banality of that evil. I mean, the banality of that evil is very much present in both of the suburbias, I feel like. I don't know if you agree with that. Yeah, no, no. I, I remember... Um... I remember seeing it in the '90s, uh, in the late '90s, as, as like a, a self-identified punk kid, uh, you know, um, being kind of uh, thinking it was kind of like um, strange that she would just be very so sort of like nonchalant about about putting this stuff into the film and not sure um, like uh, if I was supposed to like think this was cool or funny um, and. Jesus Christ! I'm, I'm. I said ten years. It's probably been a lot longer than ten years since I've seen that film. I would actually be very curious to go back and see. Uh, I'm actually kind of super excited now to watch it again and see it uh, through those eyes. I, can I say? Um, I will always say about that film. Um, it's one of my favorite director's commentaries ever. Oh, the Spirit. Penelope Spheres. It was just like, uh, yeah, did you ever listen to it? With no, her? no, that's, I'm interested She's though. Delightful because Sphere is, uh, if you don't know, she uh, came out of the punk scene. She did uh, the fall of Western civilization documentaries. Um, and then her big break was fucking Wayne's world. Yes. Uh, Which is kind of another it, reason it's like perfect for the, I don't know. It, yeah. yeah. It, it all works. Well, yeah, but then she did like Little Rascals and the Beverly Hillbillies and, mm-hmm. and, you know, like, so there's this great scene in the middle and it's usually like the poster of the film where it's just like um, these like just punks in slow motion walking down the street, like pissing off like the suburban squares and the music like done, done and not done and not, you know, uh, and um, she's just like she stops talking. She goes, you know, I was a really great director before I sold out. <laughs> That's so great. (laughs) No, I swear to God, she's watching this and like she's doing the thing where she's like, I haven't seen this movie in years. This is great. And then she like gets the end and, you know, spoiler warning. um, There's there's a young kid who dies at the end, the big like like um, set piece. And like a minute before he gets hit by this car fatally she goes oh my god i just remembered how this movie ends that's so funny oh my god oh i think what i was trying to say here is we all have to like be like you know care for each other and be sensitive like you're the director that is not what i got from the movie at all also like (laughs) well the other thing that's kind of interesting about looking at the two suburbias is Mm. how um you know, like the the suburban ennui of the 80s differs from the suburban ennui of the 90s in that yeah. like 80s punks actually stood for something like they yeah. they knew what the goals were and they knew what they believed in. Whereas we're moving when we move into the 90s, like the, the people in suburbia, they really have no yeah. so in ethos. So so in 1997. Uh, Richard Linklater kind of like uh, at about the height of his career uh, then um, directs uh, an adaptation of an Eric Bogosian play called Suburbia uh, S lowercase SUB capital U lowercase RBIA to differentiate it. Um, and 
It has Giovanni Ribisi. It has Steve Zahn, Nikki Cat. It's got um, Parker Posey, famously in it, and um, what? Um, and and it's uh, these these um, friends, quote unquote, who are who like spend their time in this convenience store parking lot. Um, they 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 often are like harassing the like um, uh, I believe he's Pakistani uh, shop owner. Um, then there's like this like waiting for Godot kind of plot uh, where um, the one like nerdy like band guy who got out of these suburbs like and started this like shitty 90s band is um, on tour and he's coming tonight to like hang out with them mm-hmm. and they kind of have to face when was the last time you saw that this film Probably like 10 years ago, like when you saw the other suburbia. But I mean, I know the film, but yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 <laughs> I love you so much for like, I'm glad that we can just like be like, oh yeah, we didn't see it, but we know it. We know um, it. Yeah. yeah. Th- this film was burned into my brain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, no, uh, this one was not burned in my brain. I, 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 I remember thinking that this was an interesting film that had a lot of cool things to say. Uh, that was not the film I rewatched, unfortunately. Um, you know, uh, again, I think, yeah, th- this film was definitely about. Oh, I'm sorry. No problem. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> this film, this film was definitely like kind of about like um, these like protagonists who who kind of don't have. It centers. Um, the men in the story, mm-hmm. the white men, in the story, and 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 these men are kind of either going off on how they don't believe in anything, how uh, their nihilism doesn't matter, or how they're actually just kind of like right wing shitheads, and and it's very interested in that about them, um, uh, you know, and again, and, and I think the film, you know, it's not not that it's explicitly glamorizing that, but it, it it's also like. Uh, it's definitely like a, a, a film of the Generation X like mindset of just like let's hear people out and hear what they have to say and like let them kind of like explore who they are, but then they they also kind of like centered around like um, women who um, kind of some very interesting women who who uh, you know they're, they're kind of just uh, peripheral. Um, there's a, a character named Suze. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, Susie who. Um, she has this like performance art piece in the beginning of the film and she um you know uh does a performance for everyone uh that like you can't tell if it's played for laughs or if or if like um the movie's actually kind of interested in in what it's doing um i I very much saw it as kind of like a mocking feminist art thing yeah it's it's weird yeah that it, it felt like it was mocking um but but then it also like kind of like gave it all this space you know like it you know it didn't if it was a joke it didn't like like raise it just kind of it, it it i don't know yeah um it was a painful film to go back to um <laughs> much I, like chasing I, amy <laughs> much like chasing amy i had i had a realization that the the three men giovanni rubisi steve's on Nikki Cat, that like when I think of the band Green Day, um, I actually have their faces as as the as the band members. That's um, funny. That that's that's about as far as it went for me. Um, but um, uh, and and I liked 
because I was a very big Eric Bogosian fan when I was younger. I don't know um, where you are with him, but um, in the, I remember reading the play and thinking that like um, the the play had uh, the character Pony, who's the like uh, rock star, as being like this metalhead. And in in the Linklater film, he's like kind of like a Matchbox Twenty like folksy, like um, you know '90s like Eddie pop. Vedder kind of yeah yeah and, and 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 like that was just like such a much better like um so much better uh, yeah uh, you know it's tough because Rabisi is really great in this film um uh you know Parker Posey's really great in this film I, I feel like they're really good performances but like you know to to, to what end it is it, it, it's, it's frustrating because like I said I really like Linklater and what he was doing at this time. It kind of reminds me of like the art school version of Clerks, which I feel like is another yeah. film we could definitely talk about here. Like, it's. I, I'm turning 38 tomorrow, and all year. I've Happy birthday, my, Michael! Thank you. Uh, I've been telling myself I should watch Clerks while I'm 37 because 37 is such a big number for Clerks. Um, <laughs> and I started it um, about a month ago when all the COVID shit started. And I, I got 20 minutes and I'm like, I'm not going to watch this movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I'm at with Clerks right now. That's probably. really funny. That kind of makes yeah. me want to subject my roommates to it. I mean, it's like you said, it's it's got that. They both have that like waiting for Godot energy, just like waiting for something to happen. Uh, yeah. The, I don't know. I love Parker Posey. Uh, yeah. And I mean, it's just like one of those cases also where you just want more of the women. And mm-hmm. I would love to see a, a suburbia clerk style movie about women allowed to be assholes who do nothing all day long. Oh, my gosh. What a perfect segue. Let's talk about Ghost World. Exactly. <laughs> and then we have Ghost World. <laughs> Uh, Ghost World was was Ghost World nineteen was two thousand. I should have written that down. Um, Ghost World uh, was two thousand and one. Um, I uh, let's see. Let me just get back to my notes here. Um, Ghost World is two best friends who just graduated high school. It's Enid and Rebecca, Thora Birch and Scarlett Johansson. Um, they are um, kind of going through the summer before they start college. Um, they're planning on moving in together. Uh, they, how would you describe them? Well, they're very kind of Daria-esque, morose high school girls who are like not quite nerdy, not exactly popular or anything, like really just had each other. And... Enid is, you know, like their their appearance is also contrasted. Like Enid has the dark short hair with the glasses and uh God, what's the other girl's name again? Rebecca. Rebecca uh, has her, her name is Black Widow. <laughs> her name is Scarjo. You heard of her? Yeah. Um she is like blonde and you know, that has more she, of a she's got, 
Is she blonde in that? I thought she was a redhead. Is she okay? She's got like this the 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 sandy strawberry blonde thing going on, mm-hmm. and uh, she's just got more of that potential to be like a normative person. So I think mm-hmm. that this, I mean, this movie, a, a lot of it, and Enid is very like into weird shit. You know, like she mm-hmm. is troll before there was trolls. Like very much yeah. like just loving things just because they're bad and trashy and and stupid and well and 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 rebecca is as well to a degree but she kind of goes through a journey well they both go through a journey on that you know in the course of the film right well i think of enid as grown-up don wiener like don wiener you know like goes through right don wiener goes through puberty and like becomes that. like a sexual being and becomes enid and, right, and, says, Fuck it, and yeah. yeah which is which was definitely like something i she relate to she what becomes jokerified yeah she goes full joker which <laughs> is where i'm at right now yeah. and that's i mean Dawn, that that was my trajectory. So that's something that I definitely like going from being a nerdy bullied kid to like being like, fuck all of this. I'm way cooler than all of you. So it just like, uh, yeah, or side eyeing the rest of high school. And then just the, the, real quick with the plot, um, they, they get involved with Steve Buscemi, who is uh, uh, like a weird. He's basically uh, the film was directed by Terry Zweigoff. He's basically Robert Crumb. Um, yes and um there and um enid kind of like hits the gas on uh, she she comes into his orbit he's like a recluse he's really into old music and and old art and he has a, a, a weird relationship to race which we'll get more on to in a second but then like they hit the gas on that uh enid hits the gas on the relationship with that she's really interested in this guy um and then yeah by about the second half of the film uh, uh, Rebecca is just kind of like um, gravitating away from Enid and then you know Enid kind of has to like navigate those relationships uh, in her life um, mm-hmm. uh, Brad Renfro's there uh, mm-hmm. as this weird um, R.I.P. yeah for real um, can I ask you did you ever read the um, did you ever read the I did comic? yes yeah, yeah. Um, boy, such wonderful performances, and I wish they had adapted that story a little better because, um, you know, uh, I, I, I think that um, Zweigoff, no one else could have really captured like the like just like ugly um, California suburban like um, sprawl quite like him, mm-hmm. um, but you know speaking of like centering like just like the wrong like like uh men in the story like um i think the i think you know um he's not you know steve buscemi is kind of interesting but he just kind of like takes on a like such a big role in the film and and i don't think that it like i think what's really interesting uh is the the friendship between these two girls right Uh, yeah no that the friendship is not explored enough at all Ooh. the friendship is not explored okay. enough so that uh that vape you know <laughs> the the friendship is not explored enough and i always felt that way and i never particularly i would like to understand why they became friends and yeah. 
what it was drawing them to each other and why Rebecca so easily dislodges from Enid. That, to me, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, at the same time, I find the in- the relationship between Enid and Steve Buscemi to be really interesting um, as this, yeah, I mean, just like we were talking about with Welcome to the Dollhouse, like this exploration of somebody desiring you. And in this case, it goes beyond sexual desire. And it's more like he sees her and uh, she sees him and uh, appreciates him for his weirdness and who he is. But then he becomes kind of obsessed with her in yeah. in a very creepy way. Right. I mean, like... um yeah, there, there's a weird period in the film where it seems like, you know, um, like there's so much ambiguity about what their relationship is or could be or something. And then, you know, it kind of, to the film's credit, it kind of moves in a lot of ways that, like, you think it would. You know, like when you have, like, a decade's difference, you know, uh, between these characters. Um, what When you... When you watched it then and when you watch it now mm-hmm. um you're you recognize more with enid than rebecca oh yeah i'm totally an yeah. enid yeah yeah just like um, a little troll just like i just give me all the weirdos like just you know yeah. like that's i mean i love the part where she dyes her hair green and that fucking asshole mm-hmm. is like just so mean to her and is like punk's dead and she throws the dollar bill at him and he's like oh so punk rock like it's it just really captures that antagonistic relationship between like he so obviously wants her in my mind and it just is like this very antagonistic thing of like this these people shitting on this weird girl and but also, you know. Yeah, while also being horny for her. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and I mean, she's so like, you know, not to be a creep. I know she's playing a high schooler, but she's so beautiful in this movie. And just like, yeah. you know, this very kind of perfect uh, representation of like the hot nerdy girl. And that, yeah. I mean, which is super male gazy. Like this movie as a woman who loves this movie, like I, I can recognize like the intense, creepy male gaze that is on this character. Yeah, for sure. It, it, it was weird. You know, I, I hadn't seen this film probably in like 10 years, like everything else we're talking about here um, before I rewatched it. And um, it was the first time I had watched it as someone who like is now like, the creepy old guy because i remember when i watched it uh actually funny story real quick aside um uh got some early advanced screening to this film in boston uh and um uh just completely blown away and fell in love with it but um doesn't go anywhere um i fell in love with her right away oh yeah and i think i kind of pretty much have been in love with her till i watched it recently i'm like no i'm i'm looking down 40 like you know like it's also very interesting to like like to see you know this person as like you know i don't know uh, a person as she is now um well 
the I mean, it's so interesting too. Like you're looking at it from perspective of a a man who's staring down forty, and you know I am I'm turning thirty this month, and it's (laughs) I'm young and beautiful, and you're old, and. I'm gonna I'm gonna pay you the compliment question mark and say whenever we're talking I always assume that we're the same age but anyway go on. No, I mean that's you know that's that my whole life but I I mean like Enid it's like you know being a, a queer woman it's like I am her but I also desire her so it's uh you know kind of a but I also like connect with her so much and you know, continue to have these, you know, the my the relationship with my Steve Buscemi is like you, Michael. And it's, it's so, so nice of me to say. But I mean, the, that's the other thing, too, is like when I remember that movie when it came out, like when I when I got a little bit older and I was in high school, like older guys would always be like, oh, my God, you're like Enid and Ghost World. Like, you know, just very like that was a you know, that that, that became instead of like, oh, I want to be like this popular actress, which was never accessible to me. It was like, oh, I'm like Enid and Ghost World. Like, that's my thing that I get to be. Yeah. Um, and it's it definitely kind of plays into the manic pixie dream girl thing, except not because she does have an interiority. Like she does have an inner yeah. life. We're alone with her a lot. We, you know, we know who she is. We know what her not only what her strengths are, but also what her faults are and what yeah. where she is kind of selfish. And I do like that she gets to be an asshole in this because women don't often get to be assholes in films. A lot of vulnerability, a lot of like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, and speaking of her as an asshole, you know, um, you know, there's there's um, a subplot uh, where um, uh, she gets she goes to art school with a wonderful Ileana Douglas, probably. Oh my god! <laughs> maybe maybe her best role. <laughs> Father, uh, mirror, father. I also have a running joke that like the older I get, the more I become that woman. Like just <laughs> batshit. Like here's my stupid uh, experimental film. Right. Uh, no, no, no. It was um, the kid has the like picture of like like skull blazer or whatever. Oh, I love that part. <laughs> yeah. She's like, is uh, this... She's like, tell me about this piece. And it's like about a video game. And she's like, oh, I thought this maybe was your father. (laughs) It's so just the absolute obsession with art about how you hate your dad is also very funny and subtle. And then there's also like. That's how you do it. Right. (laughs) And. Harry Zweigoff, like, didn't really do a lot of other things, right? Like, no, he after this, he did Bad Santa, which I didn't even know he had done that until like years later. Uh, and then he did Art School Confidential, which I was, I was very excited about and um, very uh, let down by. I completely forget about that movie and like what it's even about, but I did see yeah, it. Well, yeah, and then um, he did the Art Crumb like, movie. Right, he did Crumb, yep. Um, uh, that's a whole... Oh, I, I really want to talk about our Crumb, but... Ugh, I love... I, I, I just, I, while we're on... Go, well, go ahead. I just love our Crumb. 
<laughs> yeah. But there, my, my note when watching Ghost World, because what happens is that there's like um, Enid kind of, Seymour is Steve Buscemi's character's name. She ends up like taking this like um, uh, very racist art that was like produced for a local uh, fast food company and, and like um, putting it into an art show. And she's very kind of interested in um, these taboo uh, subjects, um, and um, she she tries to explore it in a way that um, you know uh, is is, is um, we can get into right or wrong. But like um, um, my note when I was watching this was like this does make me grateful for like I don't know social justice warrior like like speak and like you know uh where we are now as opposed to where we were in the 90s and the early aughts because you know um there's like more of a language and there's more of an emphasis on empathy that like um you know i i was also into like robert crumb for a long time i still you know i'm very interested in robert crumb's artwork but there, there's no um uh it pushes these boundaries how, how do you feel okay so let's let's now let's get into that. How do you feel about um, all that stuff? Hmm. I'm afraid I'm virtue signaling too much. You're not virtue signaling. I think yeah. that what's interesting about all the movies that we've talked about is that just be right. Just because there's no people who aren't white in the movies doesn't mean that it's not about race, right? Like they're all all three, right. all four of the movies that we've talked about are very racialized, and right very white very specifically white and i think what gets very well captured in this particular movie is the impotence of uh maybe like edgy alt alt yeah. white people trying to talk about race and mm-hmm. you you know enid and and steve buscemi like they clearly have like an understanding of racism and they both have an understanding of how fucked up this imagery is but don't understand that it is not theirs to claim or own so end up instead perpetuating the very thing that they're saying that they're against and it's also very telling of like the way that liberal white artistically minded people like the teacher Ileana Douglas mm. um, co-opt these struggles to, you know, seem like edgy or progressive. Mm-hmm. Um, you have um, did, did you have any last thoughts uh, on this rewatch? Um well, like the Don Wiener evolving into Enid thing really tracks because both of those movies end very existentially on a bus, like going nowhere. Oh. Ooh, yeah, I like that. Yeah, this is a real so, sequel, right? Okay, let's get into it now. Let's let's actually start this now. <laughs> uh, and now we start the podcast. <laughs> okay. Um. Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Um, What's your relationship to Terminator 2? I am, it's like, you know, for me, it's like the alien versus aliens thing. Like, I Mm -hmm. love the first Terminator. I know people prefer the second one. Um, 
but I I love the first Terminator for the reasons I love the first Alien, which is like it's mm-hmm. a horror movie. <laughs> and then the yeah, rest no, I of I absolutely the... love Alien over Aliens, but I yeah. love T2 over Terminator. So Interesting. Just, oh, oh, anyway. yeah, 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 but yeah. um, you know, the the first Terminator to me is more of like a, a creepy kind of horror tale. Uh, whereas mm-hmm. the the rest of the franchise is very much action based. My relationship yeah. to Terminator 2 is Sarah Connor is hot as hell. That's my, that's, that's the main takeaway. Um, I, it, it's interesting. Uh, let's see my notes here. The, the, this film also, you know, sometimes we do these things and we're talking about films that have nothing to do with Terminator 2, uh, which is kind of really fun uh, in its own way. But these, but this film you know the, the, these films we're talking about they do actually kind of have a little bit of like um what we're talking about just like there's major set pieces in malls in canals um uh there's um you know a shitty like little boy in the center of it all well my uh, favorite and, scene yeah. in terminator 2 is very probably like a very atypical favorite scene it's when john is running through the empty area behind in the mall like behind the you know running away from the other terminator (laughs) and um that's my favorite because you get to see all that weird shit that's in the back of the malls and yeah 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 the pepsi can yeah yeah. it's just like what the hell are you doing? Right, right. And it also kind of reminded, like, if talking about suburbia, like, kind of reminded me of mall rats. Like, when you mm-hmm. see the the weird, just creepy hallways that are in the mall. Yeah. It, it's, it's for a blockbuster, it, it's, um, especially for a blockbuster of that era, it, it was so weirdly, like, um, uh, it stands out as a film that's kind of a, that's about family. You know, my, my pet theory, um, my pet hot take uh, when I was, uh, you know, in my teens watching Terminator 2 was I was like, oh, it's actually a film about like having empathy for why your mom is crazy. Mm. Um, uh, I don't think that it I, I've watched this film a number of times since then. I don't think it necessarily holds up, but that is a dimension that exists in the film that like. Uh, I think is very interesting. Um, and, um, you know, I also think, you know, um, kind of jumping off of what we were talking about with the other films, I think there is an interesting thing about um, the Connors and the, the Dyson family um, and whiteness and um, sacrifice and, and honestly, just like whose like blood does Cameron really like kind of like, um, like linger on the shedding of right um, well that's something that always disturbs me about terminator 2 is the way that the black man kind of is the one who suffers the most i mean he <laughs> he suffers and sarah connor suffers the most and right, i mean i would think about this in terms of like um linkletter suburbia where there there is some like like the nikki cat character who's the the, the vet who um, is like antagonizing the, the Pakistani convenience store owner is like, like being like, you don't understand, you know, and like th- there's something akin to that with Sarah Connor, you know, like busting into this black family's house, you know, opening fire and be like, you're going to fuck the world up. Don't you understand? You know, like right. talking about a sci-fi film and supposed, you know, like that they're, they're not, you know, literally the same, but you know, um, 
yeah, there, there was something. I wonder what the audience is supposed to get out of uh, those um, those things. But. Well, and there's also a connection to the Penelope Spheris suburbia because in that film there's the stepdad who is a black cop, yeah. and much mm-hmm. is made of that. And in both to Penelope Spheris suburbia and Terminator Two, there is this. Um, the the non-radical kind of capitalist square black man uh which a lot it kind of hinges on and is made out of and to me i sort of see that as a way to kind of absolve the other characters of 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 things you know in in both of them yeah okay Yeah. yeah Now, all that said, all these other films we watched were just like complete like hangout films. And um, it's very interesting to contrast them with the, like just a drum tight like narrative, uh, just a real chase film if there ever was one. Um, um, you know, really like a thrilling um, adventure film. Um, do you let's get into um Let's, let's, let's are they better pit them. let's pit them against each other yeah. um i don't have a lot of structure for this but it's, it's, it's an open brawl here. okay welcome um, to the dollhouse I, versus... I, I, I'm gonna tell you, I haven't decided for myself which ones are better and which ones aren't me neither okay uh, as i take a hit <laughs> let's get into it man okay welcome to the dollhouse terminator 2 is better i disagree okay Okay, uh, we're, we're, we're gonna circle back. We're gonna circle back. This is great. Um, Penelope Sphere of Suburbia, uh, Terminator 2 is better. Terminator 2 is better, yeah. Yeah, Linklater, Suburbia, Terminator 2 is better. Yes. Okay, Ghost World. Ghost World is better. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Ghost World is better. Ghost World, Ghost World, I think hit me uh, has has had a bigger impact. I mean, I'm not doing a Ghost World podcast, but Ghost World, when I first saw it, viscerally just like hit me uh, in my DNA, um, uh, and and for years afterwards was the film where I was like, oh yeah, that's that's my people right there. Um, yeah. Why? I mean, you probably talk about this on other episodes, but like, yeah. why Terminator Two? Um, Terminator 2, I think it's a really interesting, uh, it's, it's an interesting, it's a blockbuster. It's a, it's a film that a lot of people have seen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a good reference point. Look, it's because our friend Joe, um, <laughs> came back from, um, seeing Mad Max Fury Road years ago, uh, you know, when he saw it before everyone else did. And he was like, dude. It's like Terminator 2 good. And that like planted the seed in my head where I was just like, well, what is Terminator 2 good? So the project here is, I think for me, in a lot of ways to explain to myself what Terminator 2 good necessarily mm. means. But then also, I'm kind of interested in um, how what other people's experiences with Terminator 2 are. Because Terminator 2, my relationship to Terminator 2 has changed a lot as I've grown older. Um, uh, so... Um, Welcome to the Dollhouse. I like the I like Welcome to the Dollhouse and Ghost World kind of being weird like stealth 
like sequels to each other. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess I'm curious for myself why I would veer towards Ghost World and not towards Welcome to Dollhouse. You know, and, and maybe there's there's some of my own bullshit that I have to unpack there. I just think Welcome um, to the Dollhouse but... is so fucking funny. Like, and it manages it's to be so fucked up, but also, like, do black humor extremely successfully. Yeah, I think it's I think it's my it's my like nihilism shit that I'm still trying to like kind of like work my way around. You know, uh, one of the things that uh, Terminator Two I think is I think it's actually kind of like a rich film. Uh, not that it realizes everything it, it tries to put in its orbit, but it puts a lot of shit in its orbit. And one of the things that it does talk about is is like this like nihilism of like you know nuclear war and um, uh, and and. I don't know where I'm going with this. Um, it's, I mean, Terminator 2 is quite nihilistic. Like, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, yeah. Well, it's flirting with nihilism. It ultimately isn't, but, you know, like, it kind of is. And and so, you know, I think that that was sort of always a thing that was, like, a turnoff for me for Welcome to the Dollhouse. Although, um, I'm not going to let myself off the hook here. When I, when I was talking about happiness, I did say I liked happiness better than Terminator 2. So I'm going to retroactively, you know what? Fuck it. I, I'm talking myself into this. Not that there's like a canon, not that this is all like written down somewhere, but like in any place that like fucking matters. But yes, I think Welcome to the Dollhouse is definitely a more interesting film than Terminator 2. I, that's yeah, what I'm saying. And also just the fact that it can be so funny while being, yeah. ex- well, like they make, he makes rape funny. Like, he has an extended rape joke where this kid keeps telling this other kid he's going to rape her. And it manages to be, like, quite funny because it's so naive the way that they do it. And they so clearly don't understand what they're talking about. Well, and then to that, you know, to bring something back around and, and stop me if this is, like, gets uncomfortable, but... You know, Cameron had his own thing where he had some weird... He always had, like, weird, like... Not always, but he had a few specific examples where there's, like, an allusion to rape, which, like, um, is just, like, twirly mustache bad guy thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and that's in Terminator 2 with Sarah Connor when she's in the, when she's in the uh, asylum. Yeah. Um, I think... I feel like there's something like that in Titanic, um, but there was definitely... And this is really going to be me showing off how cool a guy I am in his uh, scriptment for the Spider-Man film that he never produced. That was like something that he like very explicitly put in that the, the, that the character Flash Thompson uh, is, you know, in the middle of a sexual assault. And it worked its way into Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. Um, but it was it, it was something that like I, I've thought about when I think about Cameron a lot um, that like um, he, you know. I don't know. Did, did that ever like ping for you that Cameron's movies like put that stuff in? Uh... No, um, but that's an interesting point. I mean, in this one, I find like just because of my sensibility and who I am, I find mm-hmm. all of the scenes where Sarah Connor is at the asylum to be the most interesting in the movie. Um mm-hmm. 
just because I'm not like an action person, like I'm, I'm like, oh, she's, you know, this, this is like the the interesting stuff. Like we're, you know, getting the exploration of this character and like the suffering that she's going through and not being believed. And I do find it interesting that I don't think this is intentional, but I, I think in a lot of films there, there is a connection between like the violence of incarceration and sexual assault, which I think the way that the filmmaker is doing it is just, you know, that's what happens when you're in these places. But if you want to go deeper with it, like, you know, that's it, like it's it's a prison of the mind and of the body of like, you know, not being believed and being violated in these multiple ways. And also she's really hot. Yeah. And buff. Well, um, <laughs> thank you for coming on. Yeah. Um, hasta la vista. Hasta la vista, baby. <laughs> um, uh, all right. Thank you so much. I think that, that was...